Hello and welcome to another episode of Damn Interesting Week. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. And I'm Curtis Luciani. And this was a Damn Interesting Week. So let's get started with our first link. First link. All right. You know, I know that travel and hospitality are getting hit hard and are set to be a little bit flagging in coming months and possibly years. But there is a way, if you want, to visit the bottom of the Mariana Trench right now. That sounds pretty safe. uh, You know, of all the places you could visit, it seems like a reasonable one. You know, you can keep your social isolation at least limited in theory with something like this. But according to Popular Mechanics from an article by Carolyn Delbert, visiting the bottom of the Mariana Trench sounds pretty appealing right now. So there's a guy that has a submarine, they're decommissioned military submarines, and for the low, low, achievable for most price of $750,000 per person. Oh, is that all? Okay. (laughs) Victor Vescovo can take you to the Mariana Trench. This would be a good time for him to juice that with a 10% off promo code. Right. I mean, you know, yeah. the, it may be that he understands that demand will be high enough for those who are getting a little stir crazy in their Hamptons getaways or Manhattan penthouses. But it's an eight day trip. It includes three dives to the deep. And if you go to this article, it's amazing because Victor Vescovo, which is already quite the name. I mean, his name alone makes a really powerful Roman numeral kind of abbreviation. Por- makes it sound like he should be building a base at the bottom of that trench. You know, uh, he, he might be. There's, there's no telling. But the picture they included with him in the article is almost exactly a dupe for Dos Equis' most interesting man in the world. Like he's got a black sports oh, coat. Go. He's got like a fancy submarine watch. He's got the white beard. <laughs> it looks like he's adjusting his cufflink in the photo while he looks daringly at the camera. I think if you're if you're going to the bottom of the sea, you need a larger than life character to take you down. You don't want like a nerd like like yeah. <laughs> That's right. Trusting the scientists and people who are authorities in the space is what got us into this mess in the first place. Why change that now, right? Well, I mean, because you're already doing something insane. Like what you're doing is certifiably crazy. So you want to go with the person who is certifiably crazy. Yeah. Like, if anybody can pull it off, I think the scientists yeah. would be smart enough to say, no, don't do that. Mm-hmm. That's I not mean, a good place to go. Underwater exploration is a pathway by which nerds become larger than life characters. <laughs> there, you know? there you go. This is how the mad scientists <laughs> yeah. are born, right? That's right. Well, it goes on to say, according to a quote from Vescovo to Bloomberg, once you get a ways down, the surroundings look so unfamiliar that people can be discombobulated. But then everything goes completely dark. Then it's just really peaceful and there's virtually no sense of motion in any direction. So it becomes this kind of cocoon experience in deep sea. I think cocoon is a much nicer word than what I was thinking of, which is coffin. <laughs> like, you, that doesn't sound pleasant at all to me. No, but you're right. If you got to be. I don't know. Someone, some, sometimes I get a glimpse inside a coffin and I think. Eh, looks nice. (laughs) (laughs) Nice and comfortable. You know, real quiet. It goes on to mention that carrying passengers is a moneymaker that will help Vescovo underwrite his continued research into the deep ocean. So your secret lair may not be that far off because they've kept that purposefully vague. And it does note that he has a beef to settle with fellow mega millionaire and challenger deep visitor, James Cameron. Oh. Uh. 
James Cameron has been upset with Vescovo's claims that he made it 52 feet deeper into the deep. <laughs> Vescovo says, I'm going to confirm my finding during my 2020 trips. So, you know, if you have the money, you may be able to not only explore these uncharted waters, but stick it to James Cameron. That does sound worth it. I got to say, <laughs> uh, I question whether being eaten by a deep sea monster might also be on the list. But, you know, if no. you're contributing to science, if you help discover this horrible giant deep sea creature, hey, that's good. Too. Exactly right. Yeah, Vescovo should have should have hit him where he lives. Be like, yeah, uh, very interesting. Hey, what's the status on those five Avatar sequels <laughs> that, that you won't shut up about? Cameron Burns. That is so weird that there is a person on the planet whose two big things are one. Every once in a while, he makes a movie and it makes more money than any movie ever. The other thing he's obsessed with is being the deepest diver. I, for one, hope that he and Visco, whatever his name is, have a big fight at the bottom of the ocean and they can film yeah. that. <laughs> now, that's that's something I would pay. I do not have uh, $750,000 at my command currently. Uh, sorry to go into financial matters. I know it's <laughs> extremely personal. But uh, 1999, or I would consent to a one-week free trial of the streaming service. Service, offering it, uh, which I would cancel promptly. <laughs> That's right. You got to do what you got to do. Mm -hmm. All right. Next link. Next, next link. link. All right. Well, we have a lot of smart things in our lives these days. We have smart refrigerators. We have smart cars. But I have to ask you guys, are you ready for the smart toilet? I am super uh, ready for this. I, yeah. I, I got to say my inclination is to be like, yeah, I'm into it. <laughs> so this is this is an idea that's been iterating for quite a few years now. At Stanford University is this team that's sort of trying to reach the goal of a uh, doctor in your toilet bowl. So their latest model has just been released and it's got a lot of improvements. It fits into existing toilet bowls is one of the big nice. things because it used to be Ooh. a wholly separate model you had to go and install and no one was going to do that. But now you just unscrew the lid, put the new one on and it works. It's got a lot of additional tests in it than it used to have. There are test strips which will measure your glucose and your red blood cell levels, which can tell you if you are pre-diabetic or if you've got blood in your pee. I don't know. <laughs> that, that, good to know. They also have a new camera that will check the consistency of your stool and they even have an ai that can map what it sees on your stool to the bristol stool chart are you guys familiar with the bristol stool chart uh, uh no vaguely is that it, the color chart color and consistency consistency chart? yeah it's a very medical scientific chart that has pictures of turds going down the side so right. it's a really important medical tool <laughs> One of the other problems that the earlier models of this smart toilet had was how do you know who is using the toilet? You know, supposedly you're collecting data over time, mm. but a toilet in a house is going to be used by a lot of different people. So this actually has two different ways to know who's using it. One is a fingerprint scanner on the handle. So you flush and it says, oh, I know who you are now. The other uh, has raised quite a lot of hubbub on the Internet. It is a literal camera scan of your sphincter. <gasps> yeah. It's called an anal print, like a fingerprint, but yes. an anal print. <laughs> Everyone's is unique. Yeah. And uh, there's a fantastic little hand-drawn diagram in the patent that shows you what the camera would be seeing oh, and how no. it would identify. No. Yeah. So uh, so that little image from the patent has gone around quite a lot. I don't recommend viewing it. It pretty much looks like what you think it looks like. Well, you know, it's definitely going to uh -huh. give rise to, to Rule 34, right? If there's anything on the internet, someone is going to fetishize it and find it like titillating and arousing. 
I think it is very sweet and innocent of you to think that this is not already a type of porn. <laughs> yeah, there people people are already uh, pretty Oof. into buttholes. Uh, yeah, I mean the the medical aspect of it. Perhaps now you'll get storylines of like, oh, doctor, I can't pay my bill. What do I do? That may not you know be as prevalent yet. What so. is excited is the yeah. thought of my my butthole being like networked in some way so that brands can uh, monetize That's it. That's right. Or- That's right. You know, that would be great. You know, we have your primary ID. Exactly. We've got the internet of everything, but finally we have the internet of buttholes. Yes. That's right. I I am worried about targeted marketing, but I got to (laughs) say, there's a lot of basic applications here that do seem pretty exciting to me. I mean, I think there is a lot of useful information you could get, a lot of early warning signs. I mean, I mean, we're, we're, we're well down the path of talking about poop at this point, so there's no need for me to apologize, but I'll apologize anyway. <laughs> we have all looked at our most recent movement at one time or another <laughs> and just wondered, is that okay? Hmm. Is it okay the way that it is right now? Nice. It'd be nice to be told. It would also be nice to have a uh, smart targeted bidet, which I would assume that if you've got the camera in place there- Ooh, it could uh, aim. Yeah, you could have auto adjustment for your bidet stream, which would be awesome. There are some drawbacks. This design is only for Western bowl style toilets, Mm -hmm. and much of the world actually uses squatting toilets. Mm -hmm. The urine analysis system currently only works for men who are standing when they pee. I note that the article didn't point out men can sit when they pee if they want to. (laughs) That's the civil rights battle of our time. (laughs) That's right. And and of course, they are not self-cleaning. And they're, you know, these are all features that they hope to add in later editions of the product. But there are some people who say, you know what, this is a nice thing. It's good for research, but it's not the future. Professor Tim Spector of King's College in London believes that the real future, what we're all really waiting for, is magic toilet paper. Because it'll be like a sample right there. It'll change colors. It'll be like a test strip buried yeah, like, into like the toilet paper. Like a litmus test every time you wipe. You know, that's a lot like the kitty litter. That's like a smart litter where it's kind of crystalline based and then it will display different colors based on if your cat's having kidney issues. Ooh. I gave it a try several months ago and it turned out to be extremely helpful because it uncovered a UTI that my cat had been suffering. So, <gasps> oh, I mean... No. What, if, what if a person pees on it? Like bacteria is bacteria. Maybe it can work for people. It, it, it might. I know it's certainly customized for <laughs> cats, and I have never personally used a cat litter box, and that's something that I feel is less appealing than perhaps a smart toilet, but I, I like the idea of smart toilet paper. I, well, as, if it turns rainbow colors like the kitty litter does, I think people would be on board. People like rainbows. That's right. That's, you know? that's right. Yeah. The toilet paper, I don't know. The, the appeal of the bowl is that it has detached itself from your body, but applying whatever chemical compounds are required that feels a little too a little, much mm. too invasive yeah, less know. invasive than a well, registering just, your I, anal no, print ju- not invasive i just i don't want any corrosive effect on my dear dear precious mm. butthole <laughs> you don't you don't want to accidentally get butt cancer in 10 years because it turns out one of these chemicals is not good for you fair fair yeah yeah maybe the paper turns a certain color to indicate for that's you. right the toilet paper could detect after it gives you cancer so. and then it could self-destruct <laughs> The rest of the the role could incinerate immediately. That's right. Hide the evidence. Uh-huh. <laughs> All right. Next link. Next, Next link. link. Okay. This is from Digital Trends. This article is NASA lays out plans for building a long-term moon base Yay! Uh, by I Georgina Corbett. Yeah. So this opened up a thread of inquiry for me. This article is just a short article stating that NASA has released a report 
detailing how it intends to set up a base on the moon and from there send astronauts to explore Mars as part of its Artemis program. There's essentially this kind of three-stage strategy for long-term exploration under the Artemis project. The idea is that they're going to increase activity and commercialization well, of yeah. the low Earth orbit, build a permanent base on the moon, and then the moon base could conceivably be used as a starting point for Mars exploration, first by robots, then later human exploration. The thing that really uh, captured my imagination about this article, and I started going down the trail of the various hyperlinks in the article, was the idea of the coming exploitation of space. Did either of you by chance see that movie last year, Ad Astra? No, I didn't. I don't think I did. So pretty good movie. One of those movies, kind of like the movie Contact, weirdly, where like ultimately the thing you find in the void of space is emotional closure with your dad. Like, Right, because that's what you go out there for. (laughs) Yeah, that's why you go out into the dusky void is to see your dad. Um, But there was one amazingly haunting thing in it for me, which was this vision of this moon base that was basically a crummy mid-sized airport. There's like a subway and an Applebee's and just like, you know, these kind of just crummy shops. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is the thing that has stuck with me. And I've been looking at these recent space articles to see like, OK, so what is like the state of what franchises are at the top of the list? Yeah, because we know this is this is coming. Of course, there's an understanding now of, amongst all but the most deluded that, you know, exploitation of the earth is hitting it has hit Mm -hmm. ecological limits so there's definitely some people who are asking huh could space save capitalism like could we just (laughs) could we just keep doing capitalism the same way we do it uh, (sighs) as long as we bring space into the fold so just a few days ago It's crazy to think of like anyone in government finding time to do anything non-COVID-19 related right now. But on April 6th, uh, Trump signed an executive order that clears a path for mining the moon. And this is actually kind of a follow up to some legislation that was passed in 2015, just kind of putting the groundwork in a place to formalize the idea that like, no, we do not see space as some kind of like global commons. We're not pursuing any kind of like crazy Star Trekky idealistic mm. notion that right. like it's territory and we can take yeah. it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's still pretty much like it's there for the taking, right? The the big area that folks are interested in is asteroid mining right now. And there's a lot of firms already invested in figuring out ways to do this, to grab an asteroid in low Earth orbit and see what's in there. Correct me if I'm wrong. The moon really doesn't have anything worth mining. I thought we kind of knew that, don't we? Or am I wrong? Is there stuff down there in the core that's worth Well, I think that the most immediate concern is that if any lunar ice is discovered in great quantities, it'd be extremely useful for facilitating a permanent lunar base. That's a resource that's useful on the moon, not not so much to send back here, but for the staging area on the moon. Okay, I got it. Right, you. right, right. And if other minerals that were, were discovered there that could be put to use on the moon to sustain a lunar base, they want the groundwork in place to say, like, first come, first serve. Right, um, which definitely puts into to, sharper relief all of Elon Musk's efforts to possibly be doing the same thing. That's right. And when we talk about the commercialization of low Earth orbit, that includes, of course, not just the collection of asteroids, but space tourism. 
Mm-hmm. They're interested in getting companies to do more research in low Earth orbit. One example specifically pointed to was like 3D printing of organs using stem cells, which apparently is something that would be more easily achievable in microgravity. Mm-hmm. Huh. Yeah. There's definitely applications that are going to make somebody a lot of money. Yes. We want to make sure that you can still have a private copyright for something you develop uh, using publicly funded infrastructure. Uh, That's kind of the way it's always worked. And now that's the way it's going to be working in space as well. (sighs) Well, have Have you read The Moon is a Harsh Mistress? by Mm -mm. Robert Heinlein? No. No. The general plot is, in the future, there's a colony on the moon and the colony declares independence. And how is this tiny little useless colony on the moon going to fight America with all its rockets and everything? And the answer is physics-based. They basically start throwing rocks at them and it's a rock thrown from the moon ends up basically being a ballistic missile by the time it hits. And (laughs) and so it's actually quite easy. They literally just like lightly catapult them off the moon and they're just raining destruction down on Earth and they very quickly get their independence. It's a lovely book. Um, I I don't recommend a lot of Heinlein. I have problems with a lot of his stuff, but that one as its own little self-contained thing is actually quite good and perhaps applicable here. Heinlein's one of those dudes who like not only went nuts, but he like he went nuts like three different ways over the course of his life, right? (laughs) Nice. It was like for a while he was like an anarchist hippie and then he like was a hardcore Randite libertarian and... I feel like sci-fi authors particularly have a lot of intellectual latitude over the course of their life. (laughs) Right. They're allowed to to (laughs) change their personality a few times. Yeah. You can really get pretty goofy with it. I mean, thinking about the future Mm -hmm. um, constantly. Yeah. It takes a certain open-mindedness, which could translate into just changing your philosophies. Yeah. Yeah, Easy. Snap your fingers. It's done. But- (laughs) I can't imagine that, like, of the four people who will be initially manning this lunar base, there's got to be one who's, like, their first thought when they get up there is, like, yeah, we need to point something back. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is ours now. We don't have to listen to them. That instinct runs strong, especially in the type of people who are going to be going up as the first people on a lunar base. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's great. I mean, you know what? If they just want to declare themselves our new gods... That sounds fun. I don't know. Like, people something specific. (laughs) Start acting like some kind of weird vigilante justice league up there, you know, monitoring the earth and I I suppose dropping rocks to crush the the wicked among us. I have to say there there is an element of like, you know, Google Glass came out and they were like, had the potential to be monitoring everybody all the time. You know, and it was this huge dystopian fear. And fundamentally, it didn't take off because they looked dorky. (laughs) And that is an issue, I think, where if you've got these astronauts up on the moon, it doesn't matter how threatening or whatever they are. They're going to look dorky, sort of sashaying along in their, you know, one sixth gravity. You're just not going to take somebody like that seriously. I think that may be the uh, the end of their power grab if everybody's just laughing at them all the time. Yeah. If everyone's bouncing around like Teletubbies. (laughs) Yeah. How how seriously can you possibly take that? So there's hope. (laughs) (laughs) Don't fear the moon. Yeah. But the franchise opportunities are for certain. Mm -hmm. Next link. Next Next link. link. I'm going to bring things back to earth a little bit, but do you guys have lawns on your property? Like Uh, grass lawns? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I have them outside my house, out in the front and the back. (laughs) Yeah. There's a large patch of weeds in front of my house. (laughs) Well, you know, Curtis, you may have the edge up because those weeds are actually promoting more biodiversity than just the plain old lawn grass. This yeah. <laughs> this is an article from CNN Style in their Project Planet section. 
It's called Designing an End to a Toxic American Obsession. The Lawn by Matthew Ponsford. This has been kind of a conversation topic that has been sort of on the fringe eco-left for a while now. But since the 50s and 60s really created a mass proliferation of lawns, it's turned out over the decades that these are terrible uses of natural resources. Really, they suck up a lot of water, right? They suck up a ton of water. So residential lawns cover about 2% of total U.S. land and require more irrigation than any agricultural crop grown in the country. Good job. Yeah, it's it's not a good thing here. I mean, even in California, more than half of household water use is used outside of the house. That just seems ridiculous at a time when like water is becoming more scarce and California has been in a drought for who knows how long. That Mm -hmm. seems insane. It is insane. And that's kind of why there have been attitudes that have been moving towards this. There are some cities and municipalities that have moved towards incentivizing or even issuing punitive damages for those who are, you know, wasting a lot of water or anything like that. But there's been a real move from more drought stricken areas. Like I've seen even in my neighborhood in Austin, there are more front lawns being converted to zero escaping with a lot of stones or drought resistive native plants and that's a move that this article is thinking we should all be making right now yeah i feel pretty strongly about this um it's one of those areas in which my politics comes in afterward to justify my laziness right uh, because (laughs) i have absolutely no desire to spend any time doing yard work Mm Yet, I have a home with a yard. (laughs) Uh, Fortunately, in a neighborhood without a homeowner's association, so one has the option of simply letting the grass die, or or the weeds, I suppose, Mm -hmm. in my case. Mm -hmm. But it it is creepy when you're in Texas in a suburban neighborhood in the summer, and you see these perfect patches of green grass in front of every home. Mm -hmm. They really don't serve anything other than kind of virtue signaling a certain kind of lifestyle right like sometimes you can go out and play in the grass but here in texas we got fire ants we got super hot weather it's not something that you're always really utilizing but it's sucking up an unbelievable amount of water so in your case curtis the things that you're referring to as weeds are actually native plants yeah i've always thought dandelions were prettier than people gave them credit for like especially as a kid i'm like this is a fun thing you can blow on it and the little seeds fly away and they're yellow flowers well who decided that that was a bad thing i always wondered it's i think it's just been mostly an aesthetic thing like for me i've always been a fan of clover that might be in part because my birthday is on saint patrick's day and so i have just an affinity for clover but clover is often a natural nitrogen fixer so people who have to add nitrogen fertilizer to lawns would be doing the same thing if they just let the clover grow a little bit instead of trying to just plant a bunch of clover exactly Yeah. yeah we have a weird ecological phenomenon going on in my backyard we used to have a really big trampoline for the kids. I mean, really big, like the 10 foot across ones. Mm -hmm. And of course, you know, no sun gets underneath it. Mm -hmm. So we got a big dead circle in the middle of our yard. And then the kids got older, we got rid of the trampoline. And we, like Curtis, we just don't care. We can't be bothered. Mm -hmm. And over the years, it's now full of grass, but it is a completely different species of grass than the rest of the lawn. And I don't know where it came from. I don't know, you know, some neighbor's lawn 
have some seeds blow in or this is something that was dormant under the ground. Mm -hmm. But it's, I mean, it really is very obviously different. And it's almost a perfect circle. It kind of looks like we intentionally did this for artistic <gasps> yeah. purposes. We definitely did not. We do not take care of our lawn You at made all. a fairy but ring. It's for summoning, right? A summoning there fairy ring. There you go. Ring. That's That is what I'm going <laughs> to yeah. tell people from now on. That's right. <laughs> well, we do our summonses. That's right. That's right. Uh, so there are a lot of different yeah. options to getting rid of these water thirsty and homogenized kinds of lawns. Obviously doing things like native landscaping. Victory gardens are definitely making a comeback, especially now as grocery stores are having supply chain issues. I mean, it's a good way to get outside and kind of putter around. It seems like a good philosophical activity. It sort of, you know, puts you in a long-term mindset. You get something at the end. You're doing physical labor. So there's that aspect of it. Yeah. It seems like a, a really good, healthy thing to do. Uh, I'm not going to, but it, seems, <laughs> but it seems like it would be good for me if I did. Yeah. yeah. Gardening is an extremely virtuous activity that uh, I will never do uh, <laughs> at all. But but in a, if you want a, a lower grade activity, it sounds like just observing and appreciating whatever naturally happens yeah. in your yard is also a great thing exactly. to do. It's yeah. kind of the entry Get level version. Mm hmm. Well, the article goes on to note that, you know, usually if one person on a neighborhood block does something like this, it kind of signals permission for others to get a little bit more bold with experimentation or to try other things. Our property is heavily shaded by an enormous lace elm in the front yard and a big pecan tree in the back. And so my ability to do any kind of fun gardening is a little bit limited since it's all very shady. Uh, but we do have little spots of sun where I can try to grow some basil or hot peppers in pots. And we're going to look at doing a raised bed garden, possibly in the coming year. Well, I wish you luck. And if you have any extra <laughs> produce, I will be happy to take it off your hands. That, that's me doing my part. There you I, go. Will, I will contribute. It's yeah. a community. You know, when the food supply chain is broken down, <laughs> you, you'll be like, yep, basil peppers again tonight. <laughs> <laughs> basil mm, pepper stew. That's right. Spicy tea. Everyone's invited. <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. link. All right. Well, I have one from New Atlas. That, uh, again, is sort of giving us hope for eventual trips to Mars. It's called Hybrid Reactor Uses Living Bacteria to Turn CO2 into Useful Molecules. Ooh. And effectively, what this is, is, again, a process that they're slowly refining and they're nowhere near there yet. But they've made some progress, and that's why they're writing articles about it. They are using the natural processes of bacteria to process CO2 and turn it into oxygen, which is sort of the normal byproduct of photosynthesis, but also acetate. This huh? particular species of bacteria, Sporomusa ovata, releases acetate as part of its byproduct, which can be a chemical building block for things like fuel and plastics and even medicines. So if they could get this thing to any level of efficiency, that would be super cool. So far, they can't. They're working on it. But this is a process that plants actually do as well. Most plants offer about 0.4% efficiency, and this new system achieves 3.6%. Which is still very little, but much better than plants, right? So if we were somehow able to plant a bunch of trees on Mars, they would, in theory, eventually convert a lot of the CO2 to oxygen. But it's like you got to water them and that's all not an option. Mm -hmm. But you can bring a bunch of bacteria up there and the bacteria are self-sustaining. They'll divide and continue to live with very little nutrients. In this case, the nutrients that they use are sunlight. And the special trick that they're using here, instead of just like what you imagine, like a flat Petri dish of bacteria, mm -hmm. they've figured out a way to make them stacked in a, a three-dimensional core, I guess. They use nanowires and they line them up vertically, kind of like a little forest. 
And that gives more surface area. So the bacteria are all over the surfaces of the wire Mm -hmm. and also all the way up to the top of the wire. And so you end up with this really densely packed vertical strata of bacteria, which is able to produce more than a single layer could. And so, you know, this is something that is ongoing. You know, they have a lot of ideas for how to improve the next version. One of the things is right now it needs an external solar panel. They're next planning on turning the nanowires themselves into solar panels. Um, which I don't, I don't know how they think they're going to do that. It seems like that would also be a technology that would be pretty useful in other fields. So if we had it, we would be using it. So I'm, I'm not sure how far away that particular idea is. But, you know, they think that they can get to at least the most efficient plant on Earth. you have any guesses as to what the most efficient plant on Earth is for converting CO2 into anything you can think of? Algae. <laughs> that would be nice. It's, uh, it's sugarcane, actually. What? Uh, Yeah. Sugarcane apparently has about a four or five percent efficiency. So in theory, we could also just plant a whole bunch of sugarcane on Mars and it would give us a a bunch of carbs for our astronauts to get get high on. (laughs) And that is that is also part of what they're thinking for in the future is that different species of bacteria could be genetically modified to give off different byproducts. And so it'd be relatively easy for them to get a species that converts CO2 into carbohydrates, since that's Mm. also part of a plant's processes. Mm-hmm. And then you're engineering food. You're basically growing bacteria slop laden food for astronauts. Mm, appetizing. <laughs> Which sounds delicious. Little sugar cane on top. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, everyone's making sourdough right now as like a way to pass the time and make sure they've got bread. And that I think essentially uses a similar kind of thesis, right? Where you're basically encouraging growth of bacteria present already on plant matter in kind of a semi-controlled environment. Right, Mm -hmm. right. And this would be something where they basically said, okay, we've got a lot of that. Let's pack it into like a bacteria high rise and just put them all to work and don't feed them anything except the bare necessities. Like a like a lunar base, basically. (laughs) (laughs) They're hopeful. We'll see if they uh, if they get anywhere. The Mars atmosphere apparently is 96 percent CO2. So we got a long way to go before we can convert that. But oxygen's good. I'm unabashedly... uh... Well, I don't know. Should I be on a bad? I mean, some uh, living things don't care for oxygen at all. That's true. Well, and you get too much of a good thing. Oxygen poisoning is is real as well. You know, we can't uh, we can't say that oxygen is unilaterally a good guy. That's right. Too much breathing. Stop it. (laughs) (laughs) Next link. Next link. Well, Gizmodo has a wonderful headline from Gene Timmons. Fossilized vomit and feces are delighting paleontologists. And why shouldn't they? I mean, my goodness. <laughs> well, of course. I mean, extracting and analyzing fossils is very difficult, right? To really understand what you're looking at and then to extrapolate from that different things like the conditions in which a certain creature was living or how it may have died. So what some of these paleontologists have found, um, we've got two papers that were published this month that talk about some of these new, what they call ICNO fossil discoveries. Basically, we have been able to look at fossilized stomach contents since about the early 1800s. But paleontology has evolved a lot to kind of recognize these different types of fossils and also determine really specific things like fossil gastroliths. Those are stones that are swallowed to help an animal with digestion, kind of like how chickens will swallow tiny rocks to basically grind up their food because their bodies can't fully do it on their own. 
Yeah, uh, I've seen fish do that, don't they? They like I, I've seen them swallowing and then spitting back out the oh, rock. Yeah. Maybe that's a different thing. I wonder if it's the same thing or if they're just sort of being fish and being like, oh, I don't know. <laughs> Is this food? <laughs> We've also been I, able to identify things like gastric pellets, which are like types of regurgitated materials, you know, like owls will typically. Yeah, owl pellets. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly right. So we've been able to find these kinds of things, but they are still yielding a lot of information. So for example, in the famous La Brea tar pits in Los Angeles, they found a lot of tiny copious fossil feces that at first they thought were just rat turds on museum grounds from present day rats. But then (laughs) after they studied it, they found out that these were actually 50,000 year old remnants of an ancient wood rat. And they were able to determine what kind of plant matter these ancient rodents were eating. So the research found that these ancient neotama, which is the formal name of these rodents, they were eating C3 plants. That's a designation that denotes largely woody or grassy flora that was already known to have been present at the La Brea tar pit site. So it checks out. And there's a really cute little image on the Gizmodo article that shows if you've ever had a rat or seen rat turds, that's what they look like. But they've been able to really <laughs> determine these are these are ancient artifacts. Ooh, I got to say, I mean, it seems like, like you said, that it would be less likely to get those kind of fossils than compared to bones because you have to basically puke into a tar pit or like puke and then get hit with a volcano ash really quickly they basically I mean, that's, yeah it doesn't last very long it goes away very very quickly exactly so. for conditions to be right for fossils to be preserved in this way especially for matter like this it's kind of miraculous uh, they don't really go into kind of how these have been super preserved but they really more go into kind of like how to identify what these are and then to extrapolate what exactly it constitutes in here so going on to the fossil vomit <laughs> they basically needed to figure out what processes it went through over millions of years from the moment it left the animal's body was it carried away by water to sit with other bones was it impacted by pressure over geologic time periods so there are so many different variables. It, it takes a lot of work. Paleontologists are being kept busy with this kind of stuff. Well, and the day they figure out that this was all like the dinosaur equivalent of a frat party and they all were drinking too much, of, you know, <laughs> fermented ancient fruits or something, that's going to just change everything we know, man. That, that's right. I mean, and the illustrators, I've always long loved any illustrators that have to kind of extrapolate what the full-bodied animal might look like based on what fossils right. are. There's an amazing illustration by Brian Roach in the article. I totally recommend you look at it. It's an artist's reimagining of the creature that left behind the regurgitalized light and it's this adorable black and white like charcoal or pencil photo of this dinosaur just going and it's got just this whole mess and i mean it's so (laughs) impossible i think they've got like little bone fragments that are in there but it looks like little bobbins and spindles of thread or like corks and it's just like this little combined tidy little missile just like leaving the jaws as they're parted it's hysterical definitely worth a look and that, that poor artist too because they're like okay we need you to draw a puking dinosaur <laughs> but, but make it scientific don't that's, make light of this that's like this right. is a serious scientific inquiry that we're talking it's, about exactly this is a natural phenomenon even ancient creatures did it we need you to stick to scientific parameters but it's gonna <laughs> be a picture of a dino barfin mm-hmm <laughs> Um, The article ends with a really great quote from a professor at Emory University who says, I hope the average person realizes that these sorts of trace fossils, however unappetizing they may seem, give us important snapshots of what animals were eating. So instead of thinking, ew, gross, think of these more as these animals sending you meal selfies from the past. (laughs)
I think he's had a long time to work on his defensive pitch there. <laughs> Some help from the millennial intern who was like, I guess this is a way to pitch it. He seems like he's probably pretty sensitive about his job. People, you know, he goes he goes to dinner parties and people are like, oh, I'm the dean of whatever. What do you do? I studied dinosaur puke. And it's important. <laughs> There's more to it than you may think. And we really need this grant money. So please don't disparage <laughs> That's it. Right. All right. Well, that is all we have time for today. We're glad that you've joined us. Some of the ones we did not get to. Bomb tests reveal true age of world's largest fish. Scientists discover a new class of taste receptors. And lead pollution in ancient ice cores may track the rise and fall of medieval kings. So all that and more can be found online on our website. If you want to help support us and keep us on the air providing interesting information for you, you can go to www.patreon.com slash damninterestingweek. We'll, uh, we'll take your adulation in any form that you want to <laughs> give it. We hope that we will see you next week. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Curtis Luciani. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye. 